New overnight, the Texas Supreme Court rules against a woman seeking an abortion after learning the fetus has a fatal genetic condition that could affect the mother's health. Kate Cox has now left the state of Texas for care. What does this mean? in a post-Roe America. And this morning, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will meet with senators, the speaker, and President Biden in a desperate last-minute plea for more war aid, what he says he's doing, and why he says doing nothing would be a win for Putin. And a CNN exclusive, former President Trump made a personal call to a former Mar-a-Lago employee turned witness in the classified documents case, what they talked about and the legal impact. CNN This Morning starts right now. morning, we are following major developments in one of the nation's biggest abortion battles since the fall of Roe. A pregnant mother, Kate Cox, has left the state of Texas in order to get an emergency abortion and escape one of the country's strictest abortion bans. Just days ago, Kate Cox was crying with relief when a judge ruled that she could indeed terminate her pregnancy under the abortion ban's medical exception for women whose lives are at risk. But the Texas Supreme Court has now reversed that order. The nine Republican justices ruled that Cox's doctor failed to show her life was in danger. In their lawsuit, Cox's lawyers argued the pregnancy was putting her life and future fertility at serious risk. They say Cox has been in and out of emergency rooms with severe cramps and unidentified leaking. Cox says her fetus was diagnosed with a rare and deadly genetic disorder. The baby would either be stillborn or she would be forced to watch it suffer until death. At Levender, tracking all of this for us this morning from the state of Texas, this was the question, right? What was going to happen after Roe and how strong would those exceptions in laws like the Texas law be? Cox has left the state as this battle continues, but many women, especially poor women, don't have that option. What is the big picture this morning? Well, this really uh, kind of sets a, a standard for the, the way uh, this post-Roe v. Wade world is going to look um, and not to um, uh, it, it creates a situation that many critics of these abortion bans say will only continue to uh, make these waters much murkier and much more difficult for many women uh, across the state. But let's get to uh, this ruling by the Texas Supreme Court. In my, and keep in mind that this ruling was issued after Kate Cox had announced that she was leaving the state of Texas to get this abortion. And in its uh, seven-page uh, ruling, uh, the nine justices of, of the Texas Supreme Court ruled that the lower court's temporary injunction giving Kate Cox permission uh, to have the abortion, uh, that, that ruling was essentially overturned after the Texas Attorney General appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court writes that uh, the way the policy and, and the laws are written in Texas reflect the will of the legislature and that lower courts must respect that. And they also go on to say that Kate Cox's lawyers did not really establish with enough evidence that even though her conditions might be serious, that her conditions did not rise to meet the level of the medical exemption uh, here in Texas. Uh, you so there is this big fight about what exactly this medical exemption means and how are doctors and hospitals supposed to feel confident uh, getting to that point if, if a patient needs it uh, to be able to establish that medical exemption. That's what is so confusing for so many people right now. And Ed, Kate Cox, as Poppy noted, decided just hours before uh, this opinion came down to leave the state to get her abortion. How are her lawyers responding to what we learned last night? 
Well, they said that she simply was running out of time. She is now 21 weeks pregnant. She uh, felt like she needed to make this this decision. Uh, after the attorney general had appealed to the Supreme Court, they essentially paused that lower court court ruling, giving her the permission to get the abortion legally and waited for three days for the Texas Supreme Court. So because of that, they described her situation as being in legal limbo and described the weekend as hellish for her. So that's why she uh, arrived on Monday and made the decision to leave the state uh, to get this abortion. And what many critics of the abortion law and the situation here in Texas are saying is that this Texas Supreme Court ruling really sends a signal to many women across the state of Texas that you cannot go to a court and get that permission and expect it to stand. Ed Levendero, thank you very much uh, for all of this. You're right, what's happening in Texas with her case has huge implications across the country. Yeah, no question about it. Let's talk about those implications. CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, CNN political analyst and historian, Leah Wright-Rigour, and CNN political commentator, Errol Lewis, join us now. Ellie, I want to start with you. Before we pull back to the big picture, which I think is critical here, the specifics of this case, the specifics of this law especially when it comes to the medical exemption. Yeah, so Texas has a law that says a woman can only get an abortion if the mother's life is in danger. And the big question really here is, well, who gets to decide that? Would, is it up to the mother and her doctor? In this case, both of whom said, yes, she is facing a medical issue here, a serious medical issue, and therefore she qualifies for the exemption. Or do women have to go to the courts and get signed off from the attorney general, as Ms. Cox has had to do in this case, I think that's the bigger question here. Who do we want deciding these issues? And the Texas law is not clear on that, on who can, gets to decide. Can I read the Texas law? Yeah. Here's the statute. Quote, in the exercise of reasonable medical judgment, the pregnant female has a life-threatening physical condition aggravated by, caused by, or arising from a pregnancy that places the female at risk of death or poses serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function unless an abortion is... Uh, performed or induced. Well, and that, that language, serious risk or impairment right. of bodily function, that, that's where there's some uncertainty, and that's what lead us to the who decides question. The Texas Supreme Court, Leah, said in their ruling on this, this does need to be clarified. We, we need to clarify this. There's a case of 20 women now before the court making this argument for clarity. The question is, what does clarity look like in this and what will this mean for so many women who are relying on this law to be clear? So when their doctor says this is necessary, then they don't fight the courts for it. Well, for anyone watching and for anyone who is interested in women's rights and reproductive rights and abortion rights, this is a horrifying decision because it essentially says, it's, it's essentially the, the state of Texas clarifying and saying, no, you don't have a right and your doctor doesn't have a, have a right. In fact, the government has a right to step in and be in that room as you are making decisions about your health, the mother's health, um, and this entire situation. And so for, I think, a lot of people, a lot of people who are watching this and observers who are trying to pay attention to this, this is a manifestation of everything that people warned was going to happen after the 2022 uh, uh, abortion rendering from the Supreme Court. So Texas is, is starting to become clear that they believe they have the right to intervene and to make these decisions. And of course, the people who pay the price are low-income women who can't afford to leave the state and can't afford to get uh, abortions or reproductive uh, help. Just one, one note before we move on. The original filing by Kate's um, lawyers had the do her doctor's quote in there saying that that doctor, quote, believes in good faith that exercising an abortion right is her best medical judgment. It seems to be that language. It seems to me doctors are going to have to, at least for now, be much more um, direct and clear. And believes in good faith, I guess, isn't enough as well, a standard and, for this court. 
And there's very real concern about whether that invites lawsuits, whether there's liability issues, whether yeah. the license is at risk, which seems to be the biggest concern right now, I think, from her doctors and why the ambiguity right now and the clarity uh, is so necessary. I, I think, yeah. Ellie, kind of building off of Ellie's point, Errol, the, uh, there's a lot of calls from Republicans saying it's, it's hyperbolic to say something like this could happen in the immediate aftermath of Roe. We're now here. This has become a major, major political issue. We've seen it in uh, state referendums. We've seen it in midterms. We've seen it in off-year elections just a couple of weeks ago. It's striking to watch Republicans try and grapple with this, including Nikki Haley, who's kind of been on a surge inside the Republican primary. She was asked before this decision came down about this specific issue. Take a listen. I don't know the details of the case that you're referring to. What I can tell you is I don't think that this issue needed to be in the hands of unelected justices. It needs to be in the hands of the people because it's a personal issue for every woman and man. Well, that's uh, the very dilemma that many, many Republicans are going to find themselves in. Uh, you know, Texas is a step away from needing to, if, if it goes from 20 cases to 200 cases, setting up, in effect, fertility courts where all of these questions will be adjudicated, you know, case after case after case, and that it won't be a matter of going to your doctor uh, if you want to preserve uh, your life and your health and your future fertility. You're going to have to go to the state of Texas. You're going to have to ask a bunch of judges or the attorney general whether or not you'll, you'll be able to do that. It is exactly the, the horrific scenario that the opponents of the, the, the court have uh, laid out, and, and here we are. And so if you look at all of the different uh, instances, whether it was by referendum, whether it was seats that flipped, Democrats are going to take this and they are going to run on it. They're going to run on it like crazy. And they're going to find a lot of success because a case like this really sort of, you know, you, you can't contain it. It's not just confined to Texas. People all over the world are watching this now. And a lot of people are going to make very serious political decisions based on it. Uh, Errol, um, Ellie, Leah, thank you. Stay with us. We have a lot more to get to. Well, also this morning, two battles colliding in Washington. One could shape the future of democracy overseas. The other could expose political rifts on Capitol Hill. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky takes his appeal for more war funding to lawmakers and President Biden starting at 9 a.m., now, President Biden is trying to secure $60 billion in additional military aid for Ukraine. His budget director warning that cutting off aid now could, quote, kneecap Ukraine on the front lines. And just this morning, Russia claimed it has advanced significantly in southern Ukraine. And listen to this stark warning Vladimir Putin gave in October about what he thinks will happen if the West stops supporting Ukraine. When it stops, in a week's time, everything will be down. The same uh, when it comes to uh, Ukrainian defense. Can you imagine? When they stop uh, supplying Ukraine with weapons, they will have one week to live. That is as clear as it can be from Vladimir Putin. President Zelensky arrives in Washington in a city that is very in a different place from where he addressed a joint session of Congress. That's what you're looking at. That was almost a year ago, December of 2022. Standing ovation for him then. When Zelensky does visit D.C. today, Republican lawmakers are expected to take another step towards starting an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. Let's go to Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. Striking to see them versus what Zelensky is walking into now. Talk to us about what happens on the Hill today. 
Yeah, I mean, that bar is so high for Zelensky. It's really an impossible task, given where so many of these Republican lawmakers are right now on the issue of more funding for Ukraine. You know, it's interesting. Last night, I talked to Senator Mitt Romney about whether or not there was anything Zelensky could say to sort of change Republicans' mind about insisting that border security and proposals to change border security need to be part of a deal to provide Ukraine with additional aid. And he said, no, it's really up to Democrats to be compelled by Zelensky's address today to members. You know, there are other members who have long been opposed to more and additional funding for Ukraine. People like Senator J.D. Vance, who I talked to last night, who called Zelensky coming to Capitol Hill really just more of a dog and pony show at this point. So you really see there just how difficult it's going to be for Zelensky to change some of these Republicans' minds. Now, he's going to have a very important meeting after that all-senators briefing with the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. If you remember, when he came back in September, Kevin McCarthy was still the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now, the person who has the gavel is Mike Johnson. And it's going to be up to the speaker to decide whether or not he is willing to put additional aid for Ukraine on the floor, given the dynamics of his conservative members within his conference. Here's what he said last night about what he's going to be talking with Zelensky about. But I don't think it is a a radical proposition to say that if we're going to have a national security supplemental package, it ought to begin with our own national security first. And, And so I'll explain to him that while we understand that, I've made my position very clear, literally since the day I was handed the gavel, that we have to take care of our border first. And the senators who are working on that border proposal, they are even starting to say that it's very unlikely that there would be a border proposal that would be announced by the end of the week, which means lawmakers are likely going to head home for the holidays without any additional aid for Ukraine being sent, despite the stark warnings from the White House that that money is running out. Phil Poppy. It's remarkable just how much things have changed in less than a year. Lauren Fox, thank you. Keep us posted throughout the morning. For more on the impact of this essential Ukraine funding, let's get straight to CNN's Nick Payton Walsh, who is on the ground in Zaporizhia. Nick, for Ukrainian officials watching this, what are they thinking right now as the very real possibility of no more aid in the near term uh, comes into focus? Yeah, look, I think it's important to point out it's probably unlikely there will not be any aid. The point is there won't be enough to make a difference or possibly keep some parts of the lights on here in Ukraine's frontline areas. Real dent in morale in just by the stalling we've been seeing on Capitol Hill because what's kept Ukraine buoyed over the past months is the notion that the West is entirely behind them with all of their resources. On the front lines, we've heard from troops palpably angry. One guy we saw zip-tying a makeshift RPG head to a cheap drone to fire at the Russians, a kind of uh, suicide drone attack. I'm really furious at the idea that this aid may begin to slow. We hear from Ukrainian soldiers saying they will fight on till the end. They have to. They have no choice. Otherwise, it's Russian occupation. Uh, But I think a sense of dismay, frankly, that this change in political climate is immediately potentially impacting them in the weeks ahead. Look, the front lines here have not yielded the kind of counteroffensive victory 
that the billions of dollars of NATO aid uh, had indeed hoped for, but that is playing exactly into Putin's hands. He doesn't have an electoral cycle really to worry about. He has uh, an enormous capacity, it seems, tolerance for pain and casualties. He has a large budget behind him, and he was essentially waiting for that moment of Western unity to begin to shatter. That seems to be happening now, and there are indications that Putin's not just digging in defensively, potentially thinking of places to advance. Near Avdivka, another town in the east, the Russia's willing to throw thousands of soldiers out to die in order to take it. And even today, a major Ukrainian mobile network, subject of a hack that we may possibly guess reasonably, Russia might have something to do with. So Ukraine's still under attack, but now having to think about the idea of defending itself without the kind of unequivocal U.S. aid and Western aid it's been used to. They've kept it essentially uh, able to fight this long. Phil? You see the real impact on the ground. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you for the reporting from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Well, the fate of Harvard's president in clear focus this morning, what we just learned about her future. And CNN has new and exclusive reporting on Donald Trump's classified documents case, what our team of reporters uncovered about the person who allegedly moved some of the boxes at Mar-a-Lago. That's coming up. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now to see an exclusive this morning that reveals that Donald Trump and his associates repeatedly contacted a former Mar-a-Lago worker turned witness in the classified documents case. This contact was before any charges were filed. This is the same longtime employee who did move several boxes that you see there for Trump and was also privy to conversations between the former president and his two co-defendants in this case. Caitlin Polans broke the news. She joins us from Washington. What's the significance of this? Well, Phil and Poppy, we're talking about somebody who was very in touch with the Mar-a-Lago world, had worked at the club for a very long time, had a lot of connections there, and was witness to a lot of things that ultimately became part of the charges against Donald Trump for mishandling classified documents and trying to obstruct the probe. Somebody who had moved boxes, had overheard conversations. That person, that former employee, had left his job after the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago and it became very apparent Donald Trump could be charged with a crime and was being looked at by federal investigators. But before 
Trump was charged. So the employee leaves his job. And at that point in time, um, he remained in contact with many people from Mar-a-Lago, but also was noticing just a pattern of conversation about what his status was. Would he be using his own lawyer or would he be hiring uh, or be wanting to use a lawyer that was paid for by Donald Trump? Some people were asking him about that. There was a, a close friend of his who also worked at Mar-a-Lago who essentially indicated to him that, you know, maybe Trump would really love to see you at an upcoming golf tournament. You could get free tickets and come. Um, he, there was also this discussion with him where as he left his job at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump took the very unusual step of calling him on his personal cell phone to see why he was leaving the club a couple months after the FBI search of Trump's property in Florida. All of this taken together, it's a pattern of communication that the special counsel ultimately did hear quite about, uh, quite a bit about. They looked into it. It could just be conversations among friends and colleagues. At very least, it's a window into how this community works of people that have worked for Donald Trump, that they kept close tabs on one another, that they were keeping in touch and discussing what was happening with this investigation before the charges came about. But it also is notable in that it is a little bit unusual for Donald Trump to call this person and for these conversations to be happening in the way that they did. You know, maybe he's just a big golf fan. We don't know. Um, but I want to go back to something you noted, though, Caitlin, and that was the offer of a, a Trump-financed attorney. Uh, there are a number of individuals involved in this case uh, that have uh, co-defendants that using Trump-provided attorneys. How does that all play into this? Well, it has played into it because the special counsel's investigators, they've been asking a lot of people about that. We know that from all of the reporting that we did about grand jury testimony and parts of the investigation. It was a question that they were asking a lot of different people if they were being provided attorneys by Trump. And then it's something that the special counsel investigators have followed up on, too, as Donald Trump is headed to trial next year, making sure that people who are represented by lawyers in Trump world uh, where they're, they're, those lawyers represent a bunch of people, that there isn't some sort of conflict of interest. But it isn't totally abnormal for a corporate entity to pay for lower level staffers, employees, uh, lawyers of the employees. Caitlin, really interesting reporting. Thanks very much. And new developments in the mystery surrounding jailed Putin critic Alexei Navalny. His legal team has lost contact with him. A mysterious billboard popped up in Russia urging people to vote against Putin. And there's a last minute scramble to get a climate deal done at the summit happening now in Qatar. An overnight deadline set by negotiators passed with no deal. The most contentious issue is the decision to remove the reference to the phase out of fossil fuels, the main cause of the chaos. We're going to dig deeper next hour into whether a deal can actually get done. Stay with us. An offer of golf tickets, legal representation, and reminders that a job at Mar-a-Lago is still available. That is, according to our new reporting, what Donald Trump and his associates repeatedly offered a former Mar-a-Lago worker turned witness in the classified documents case. Back with us now, Errol Lewis, Leah Wright-Ragour, and Ellie Honig. Ellie, the fact that this offer and these calls from Trump to a former employee who is not named, we don't know, happened after the um, FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, but before the charges. Is that relevant here? It is. This is one of these issues where we all, common sense people, all understand what was happening here. They were trying to make sure this employee stayed loyal. They were trying to make sure this employee didn't flip on them. 
I'm not sure the evidence, though, is unusual enough that A, a judge would admit it, and B, that you could really make that argument to the jury. Yeah, that it's witness tampering. To me alone, this does not make out witness tampering. Okay, you called someone who left their job, you let them know the job's still open. Okay, you offered to take someone to a golf tournament. Um, However, it might fit into a broader pattern that we've seen here, right? I mean, we've already seen charges of obstruction and then obstruction upon obstruction in this case, relating to hiding the boxes, tampering with the video surveillance, trying to influence certain witnesses. So it could fit into that. It could support the overall picture that prosecutors are trying to paint here of a concerted effort to obstruct justice. It's fascinating reporting. Not totally sure exactly what it means going forward, but it's just a great example of our team's work. What is, uh, I think, very out front right now is what the special counsel did yesterday in terms of going straight to the Supreme Court to challenge President, former President Trump's immunity claims. Errol, what did you take from this, the decision to go straight to the Supreme Court here? Well, first of all, it, it's, it's something that they're, they're entitled to do. It's not, it's not super, super rare yeah. to sort of go and ask for, you know, well, the, the Supreme Court. Can you explain that? Why? Well, I mean, look, normally there's an appeals process. You go through different levels and then the Supreme Court decides whether or not to take a case. And that can take uh, months or even a year or two. Uh, But what we saw in the case that comes to mind, I think that probably most viewers might remember, is uh, back in 2000, when there was a real question on the table about whether or not votes were being counted properly in Florida, the Supreme Court took up the case immediately and and they resolved it uh, because we needed to have a new leader of the country. Um, You can ask for that. In, In this case, it's not quite as dramatic and it's not quite as urgent. But what Jack Smith is saying is that you know, look, if, if we've got an election that's about to start, if what if what is at the end of all of this is that the president cannot be prosecuted for any reason, for anything that he did while he was in office, which is basically what his lawyer, the case that his lawyers were making. Tell me now, let's not let's not waste everyone's time with this. If at the end of it, there's going to be some kind of crazy immunity. Now, he's doing this knowing that what the, Trump's lawyers have asked for is absurd. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine that they're going to get everything that they want, but it's best to have it litigated now. Leah, explain what Trump's lawyers are asking here for, because the fate of two cases, the election interference case and the Georgia election interference probe, hang in the balance. If this court decides, even a 5-4 you know, narrow majority decision, when you're a president, you're immune from things like this, those two go out the window. Absolutely. They're, they're gone. And this is why this is such a crucial moment. And in fact, in some respects, I know the Trump folks are um, irate over the special counsel's decision to, you know, to push the Supreme Court and decide that uh, make this decision right now. But this is also something that Trump people should care about because the Supreme Court is going to lay it out. They're going to either say, no, actually, you don't have immunity um, based on things that you did in office or you do. And so we have to decide. I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that we have to decide it because we have an election that is rapidly approaching. And part of the Trump team strategy has been to stretch out this kind of uh, political process and this legal process in order to get to the point of being reelected president of the United States, by which then there are all kinds of kind of legal uh, calamities or rules and regulations, including one in which he can pardon himself, right, or preemptively take it off the table. Again, I think it's, it's important to think about what this decision might actually entail as well. Because what happens if the president of the, or, uh, the next president of the United States is told, no, actually, you do have immunity over anything that you did while in office? That changes the entire landscape of how somebody governs and what they are able to do and what the American public allows them to do. 
Ellie, to, to Leah's point, Trump's team being irate, it's a day that ends in Y, so I'm not <laughs> totally surprised. But is it just because that they're trying to delay or is there a reason that they should be upset that this happened? If, in fact, they're irate, it's because this is all about the calendar. This is all about dragging it out. Absolutely the right move, the smart move, the necessary move by Jack Smith if he wants to keep that March 4th trial day. I do think the Supreme Court will take this on the expedited basis. Yeah, they haven't said yet. We don't know. Right. They haven't said, but I'm, I'm predicting now. I do think they will take it on the expedited basis. <clears throat> then they get to this million-dollar question, and we will get an answer, I believe, within the next several months. Yes or no, is a president immune for I, a conduct within the scope of the presidency? I don't get part of the law that they're trying to determine here. Yeah. Do we know? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, this is developed. What part of the Constitution are they going yeah, to point to here? This is, it's, it's based off Article 2, which creates yeah. executive power, and it's based off common law that has developed over the last 40 years in the Supreme Court. Going back to Richard Nixon, actually not related to Watergate, a case where he got sued by a former federal employee who had been fired, sued Richard Nixon. Supreme Court looks at it and says, you cannot sue. Different question than we have now. Can you prosecute? But you cannot sue the president for something within his job as president. All right, Ellie, Leah, Errol, thanks, thanks guys. guys. Well, the United Nations gets ready to hold another emergency meeting over the Israel-Hamas war. And just in, another crossing opens from Gaza. But it's not opening for delivery of humanitarian aid. We'll explain next. Also, it's decision day at Harvard. The fate of the university's president, Talid, expected to be announced shortly. Stay with us. Well, brand new this morning, the Harvard Crimson reporting the university's embattled president, Claudine Gay, will keep her job. She's been under fire since her House testimony last week about anti-Semitism on campus. CNN's Jason Carroll is live for us in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Jason, we've seen the reporting from the Harvard Crimson. We know the pressure that has been on the president over the course of the last several days. What are we hearing right now about how this is all going to play out today? Well, we're hearing that, according to the Harvard Crimson, uh, as you said, that the Harvard Governing Board will announce uh, later today, later this morning, we're hearing that uh, Claudine Gay will, in fact, be able to keep her job, keep her position as president of Harvard University. As you know, Phil, uh, the board had been silent for the past several days as speculation swirled as to whether or not she would be able to keep her job after that widely criticized testimony in front of Congress last week. But over the past 24 hours or so, we've seen a great deal of support coming forward for Claudine Gay, including 700 faculty members who signed on to that petition that was sent to the governing board saying they support her. In addition to that, we saw, saw the Harvard Alumni Association signing a letter in support of Gay. Also, 18 black faculty members within the past 24 hours also signing a letter supporting Gay. One of those, Professor Randall Kennedy, spoke to CNN last night about, about why he says gay should stay. I think that uh, President uh, Gay is being, is, is being targeted. She's the obvious target of a smear. The politicians who called her and the other presidents to the House of Representatives had made it clear that they had already determined that there was an anti-Semitism problem at these universities. They weren't exploring this. 
Now, we also have been speaking to a number of students here on campus within the past 48 hours or so, uh, many of them who, say, who said that while uh, Gay's comments uh, were hurtful, uh, while they were insensitive, they were very critical of her. Even some of those students, Phil, said they still felt as though Gay should keep her position and were really offended that there were outside sources, outside influences trying to force her out. So again, Harvard's governing board expected to announce later today or according to the Harvard Crimson later this morning, that Claudine Gay will, in fact, be able to keep her position here at Harvard. Phil? All right, Jason Carroll, live for us in Cambridge. Keep us posted. Thank you. Ahead for us, a man who spent nearly 20 years in prison for a murder he always said he did not commit. Well, this morning he is free, and you're looking at his smile there. His conviction overturned by a judge. We will be joined by him and talk about the moment that he learned he'd be a free man. And baseball's new $700 million man decides to defer most of his pay. Why he's waiting to get $680 million bucks for almost a decade. Stay with us. If I were to get a message out to him, uh, I don't know. I just want, I want the people, not just him, but I want others to know that I have hope and uh, for, others for other people to have hope that we can change the regime if we work together. That is the daughter of Alexei Navalny telling CNN last night she hopes her father is safe after his legal team says they've completely lost contact with him. He is serving prison time in Russia. New this morning, a prison employee told a spokesperson for Navalny that he left the prison colony where he was, but they couldn't confirm where he is now. It has been a week since anyone has heard from Navalny, who is serving time for extremism and other charges he denies, the White House is, quote, deeply concerned. They are reiterating calls for his release. A spokesperson for the Kremlin told reporters this morning they have, quote, neither the intention nor the ability to monitor the fate of prisoners and the process of their stay in the relevant institutions. Close quote. Supporters call Navalny's arrest and incarceration a politically motivated attempt to silence his criticism of Vladimir Putin. Navalny has been imprisoned since returning to Russia nearly three years ago when he was poisoned with the Soviet-era nerve agent uh, Novichok. A joint investigation by CNN and by Bellingcat implicated the Russian Security Service. Supporters call Navalny's arrest and his incarceration politically motivated and an attempt to silence his criticism of Putin. His daughter told CNN last night about the last health update that she got. Listen the most up-to-date news on his health is that two weeks ago he fainted in his cell because they've been practically starving him. He's very malnourished. Uh, he's not getting any medical support that he needs or he's been uh, asking to see a dentist and they're not providing anything. We have no idea where he is. Our Fred Plekton joins us now with much more. Fred, you've been following this so closely for years as so many people have. CNN's documentary, of course, on Navalny followed all of this. The fact that a spokesperson for the prison is saying, look, he left or was taken, not that he left voluntarily, the penal yeah. colony a week ago, there has not been any update, right, on where he is from anyone? Yeah. Yeah, there's not been any update whatsoever. And just to, to give our viewers a sense of how difficult it is to get 
straight answers or any sort of answers out of the prison service. None of this came voluntarily from the Russian authorities. The uh, lawyers for Alexei Navalny saying he was supposed to show up for a hearing via video link from the jail that he is supposed to be in yesterday didn't turn up for that. Originally, the prison service then said that there were problems with the electricity there. But however, upon questioning, they then uh, acknowledged that actually he was no longer listed as even being inside that prison anymore. Today, he was supposed to show up for a video link again and didn't show up. And then they finally acknowledged that he had been transferred out of that prison, but again, are not saying where exactly he's been transferred to. Now, all of this is very difficult, obviously, for the legal team of Alexei Navalny, for his family, of course, as well. However, it is not unheard of within the Russian prison system. We have to keep in mind that Alexei Navalny was supposed to be transferred to a jail with an even harsher regime, an even tougher jail than the one that he's been in so far. And our viewers just heard from Alexei Navalny's daughters how difficult the situation he is in right now, them saying that he's essentially malnourished. Of course, we also know from his associates that he apparently fainted inside his jail cell last week and had to be put on an IV. Well, now he's supposed to get into an even tougher regime. However, they are not saying where that is. And one of the things that does tend to happen when a prisoner is in the process of being transferred within the Russian prison system is that they're completely out of communications. They're not allowed to communicate, and also the prison service itself does not communicate. And so it's up to the legal team to actually find out where he is. We might hear from Alexei Navalny at some point in time when he's reached the new place, when he's gotten settled in there. But as of this writing, as of right now, they simply have absolutely no idea where he is or how he's doing. Paul. Fred, let's talk about the timing here. I mean, this comes just after all these billboards went up across mm. Russia that, you know, appear to say sort of Happy New Year. Yeah. But then if you go through the QR code posted on them, they talk about, quote, Russia without Putin. They were apparently paid for by Navalny's anti-corruption foundation. And here is what the head of that foundation told CNN last night about the timing here. If you just look into the timings, uh, Navalny disappeared on Tuesday last week and the official elections were um, announced on Thursday. Putin wants his re-election to be as smooth as possible. He likes his opponents to be silent. How significant is this timing? Yeah, it is. It is quite fascinating timing. I mean, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that Vladimir Putin did just a couple of days ago announce that he was running again. And then they did manage to get these billboards put up, which the Russian uh, uh, authorities clearly were not happy with at all. In fact, there's video of those billboards then being taken down very quickly once the authorities found out that if you go on the QR code uh, that you actually come to a site that says don't vote for Vladimir Putin. It's certainly not what the Russian leader wants. And once again, one of these instances where Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation is trying to make its mark on these elections. So certainly not something that Vladimir Putin wants. At the same time, though, it's not clear whether or not it actually has anything to do with him essentially going dark at this point in time or whether or not it is that transfer or some sort of other reason. Nevertheless, the concern certainly remains on the part of his family and on the part of his associates as well. Dr. Plankton, thanks very much for all the reporting. Keep us posted. The critical legal question in the federal election subversion case against Donald Trump is now heading to the Supreme Court. We're going to examine Jack Smith's move being described as extraordinary. And Ukraine's president is in Washington, heading to Congress as the battle to pass more aid for the country divides Congress. The top Democratic negotiator in the Senate joins us with where things stand ahead.
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. The NFL had a rare Monday night doubleheader, and it gave fans one of the most improbable comebacks in recent memory. The 4-8 Tennessee Titans stunned the 9-3 Miami Dolphins and the CNN This Morning Pick'em Pool with the 14 points and the final three minutes to win. Coy Wire joins us now. Coy, how did this happen? Yeah, improbable. Titans had just a 0.3% chance of winning in the final three minutes, according to ESPN Analytics. Didn't matter. Check it out. Down two touchdowns with 2.46 to go. Rookie quarterback Will Levis letting it rip to hit DeAndre Hopkins for the touchdown. And Tennessee would go for two. They get it. It was now a six-point game. And after some great defense, Tennessee gets the ball back, and it's Levis to Hopkins again for the big play. Levis had 129 yards in the final two drives, and that set up King Henry. Derek diving in for the score. Titans rally to win 28-27. They're the First team in seven years to overcome a 14-point deficit in the final three minutes. Now, Phil, Poppy, you got to check this out. Giants rookie quarterback Tommy DeVito is a whole vibe. Rocking chains and a fuzzy pink pullover pregame versus the Packers. But how about this? The kid from Jersey who still lives with the parents, his parents, has an agent who looks exactly like you'd expect. That's Sean Stellato. I mean, is this not glorious? Poppy, Phil? I mean, it's, <laughs> Coy, I love you generally. I love you so much because I literally walked in the office this morning and all I was talking about was Sean Stellato and how... Uh, Tommy DeVito, his family, everything about it is wonderful. And the agent, look, kissing the dad, the dad kissing the agent. It's like they, 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 a script writer could not have written a better script. And frankly, I don't know how you feel. He's done pretty well. Throws a good ball, has improved every week. I, I, I love it. Look, they've won three straight, in large part, to Tommy DeVito and chef's kisses all around for Giants fans. They beat Green Bay 24-22, rolling in style. You know, Corey, there's a lot of Jets fans uh, on our team here, but I think everybody can appreciate Tommy DeVito. No, Corey Wire, yeah. thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Got it. CNN This Morning continues right now. The Supreme Court moving fast after the special counsel asked the justices to rule on one of Trump's main defenses. Whether he is immune from prosecution, whether he is protected from double jeopardy. Jack Smith wants to skip that middle step. Voters need to know if this man is a convicted felon when it comes time for the election. The Texas Supreme Court reversing a ruling that allowed Kate Cox to get an emergency abortion. She had no other choice but to leave the state to get the abortion. Although she had the ability, many, many women were trapped in their states. Ukrainian President Zelensky to the White House and to Capitol Hill as delays for more aid are continuing in Congress. The prospects of this getting done before the calendar year is up looks not good right now. When the free world hesitates, that's when dictatorships celebrate. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. We start with an extraordinary request from the special counsel in the election subversion case against Donald Trump. 
Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, wants an answer from the Supreme Court on whether the president is immune from prosecution, and he wants it as soon as possible. Uh, Smith went directly to the high court, essentially leapfrogging what could have been a very lengthy appeals process. It could push the case far past the March trial date. And last night, the court agreed to expedite the consideration of Smith's request. Trump now has eight days until December 20th to respond. Let's dive straight in with CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, let's start with the argument Trump's legal team was making here. Explain it. Yeah, so let's talk immunity. This is really interesting, trust me. And it's about to get really, really important. So there's some things we do know and some things we don't know. Let's start with what we do know. There is such thing as what we call civil immunity, meaning that a federal official or former federal official cannot be sued civilly for anything that falls within the scope of the job. We actually got that from a decision back in 1982 involving Richard Nixon. Nothing to do with Watergate. Basically, a former federal official had been fired during the Nixon administration, sues Richard Nixon, and the Supreme Court says you can't sue him because firing and hiring federal officials, Mm -hmm. that's part of the job as president. That's within the scope Mm -hmm. of working in the White House. Now, here's what we don't know, but we're going to find out very soon. First of all, criminal immunity. I put that question mark there on purpose. We don't know whether there is such thing as criminal immunity. Can you be immune from criminal immunity? prosecution. And the question really is first, is there such thing as criminal immunity? The second thing is, if so, did Donald Trump's conduct fall within the scope of his job as president or not? The way it was described to me, by the way, it doesn't just apply to the president. When I became a federal prosecutor was, if you get sued for bringing a case for something you do in court, you're covered. That's within the scope of the job as a prosecutor. But if you go out on the weekend and get in a bar fight, not that I ever would, you're not covered for that because that's outside the scope. Now, The district judge here has already ruled on this case. She has rejected Donald Trump's criminal immunity argument. She has said there is no divine right of kings. Therefore, there is no criminal immunity. But that's the issue as it's teed up now. And the real question is the scope of the job. Yeah. The argument is, the crux of it is, is it within a president's job to allegedly interfere in all these ways to try to keep the job? Exactly. That's the crux of it. And how does this apply to the cases against him. Yeah, well, look, the big issue here, the reason Donald Trump is moving quickly, or excuse me, DOJ is moving quickly here, is because of the calendar. Let's orient ourselves. Today is December 12th. The key date is the trial date in that case, which is March 4th. That is 84 days away. That is not a lot of time to get through the appellate process. Here's how the appellate process normally would work. This is the district court judge, the trial judge. We already have an opinion from them. Normally, the next step would be up to the Court of Appeals. That takes months Mm -hmm. in the ordinary course. And if Donald Trump lost there, he could then ask the Court of Appeals to rehear it again, what we call en banc, meaning the whole Court of Appeals. That's going to take more time. And only then do you get to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case. There's no way you get that done in 84 days. What DOJ, what Jack Smith is asking here is we are at, again, we have a decision from the district court, but we want to go right up to the Supreme Court. It's called direct review. Now, how often is this occurring? Okay, it's very rare historically. It actually happened with Richard Nixon in the Watergate case, and then it didn't happen for a long, long time. However, this current court has granted direct review 19 times in the last four years. I have to credit Steve Vladek, who looked that up. Some of the most important cases, the Biden student loans case, yeah. made went direct to the Supreme Court. And an important dispute about immigration enforcement, skipped that middle level, went right up to the Supreme Court. So this is what DOJ is now asking the Supreme Court to do. They're going to decide on that fairly quickly. 
All right, Ellie Honig, we really appreciate the breakdown and the fact that you'd never get into a bar fight. That's never, never. Right Scare people off from the start. Why would they start? <laughs> we'll keep following it closely. Got the crew laughing with that one, Ellie. Good, good. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky back in Washington this morning, preparing to head to Capitol Hill with hat in hand. He's trying to win over new rounds of funding from a very divided Congress on this issue and, frankly, a divided country on this issue as he battles against Russia. Now, Zelensky will start his day with an all-senators meeting. He also has some face time in the House with the Speaker, Mike Johnson, and Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries. CNN's Arlette Sines is live for us at the White House. Arlette, when you talk to White House officials, what are they hoping can come out of this visit? Well, Phil, President Biden wanted to invite Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky here to Washington to make that personal and direct appeal to lawmakers who still remained bogged down on whether to support additional aid for Ukraine. But Zelensky will have a very difficult task as he speaks with lawmakers. He was here at the White House yesterday meeting with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan ahead of that full slate of meetings up on Capitol Hill, meeting with the full Senate and then one-on-one meetings with the House Speaker and and, uh, the House Democratic leader as well before coming here to the White House uh, in the afternoon for meetings and a press conference with President Biden. And both Zelensky and Pre- President Biden have warned that inaction on this aid for Ukraine will simply be playing into Putin's hands. You've had officials warning for weeks that not giving this aid to Ukraine at this moment will kneecap them on the battlefield. But Zelensky is really facing a very difficult and nearly impossible task at this moment. Republicans remain dug in that any aid for Ukraine must also have uh, changes to border policy paired with it. And there were Republicans up on Capitol Hill yesterday who said that Zelensky's visit wasn't going to change their minds on that matter. So right now, this is a very complicated moment for both Zelensky, who needs the support uh, for to continue his fight against Russia on the battlefield, but also for President Biden, who has made uh, his calls for Western unity uh, central to try to face Russia's aggression against Ukraine. For sure. And tomorrow, a huge political battle is going to come to a head with the House deciding whether it will formalize an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. I wonder how the White House is responding to that in the mix of all of this. Well, Poppy, the White House has always braced for the possibility that the House could go down this route, but they've continuously pointed to the fact that so far these investigations have not turned up any evidence of wrongdoing on President Biden's part. And that is something uh, that a spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office, Ian Sams, pointed to once again yesterday. He said, quote, if they press onwards with this baseless fishing expedition, it only proves how divorced from reality this sham investigation is and will come at the expense of meaningful work to actually address the issues the American American people care about. But all of this could also present a very complicated political dynamic for President Biden if they decide to move forward with that impeachment inquiry. And then you potentially head into a full impeachment of the president uh, heading into a 2024 presidential campaign. It all could complicate much of the political dynamics for him as well. All right. Arlette signs very consequential day in Washington, especially at the White House. Thanks so much. Overnight, the Texas Supreme Court blocked a ruling that would have allowed a woman to terminate her high-risk pregnancy, what this decision means for her and for women across the state of Texas. And after nearly 20 years in prison, a Minnesota man's murder conviction has just been overturned. Ahead, Marvin Haynes will join us for his first national TV interview since being released. I shed tears. I haven't cried so much in, 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 in 19 years. 
New this morning, the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, has signed legislation expanding abortion access in her state. At the same time, she's repealing the state's ban on insurance coverage for abortion without the purchase of a separate rider. Whitmer is a survivor of sexual assault. She says this shows, quote, to never stop fighting for what you know is right. And there are new developments this morning in the case of the Texas woman fighting to end her high-risk pregnancy. Last night, the Texas Supreme Court ruled against Kate Cox, reversing a lower court's ruling that would have allowed her to get an abortion under the state's medical emergency exception. Cox's doctors say her fetus has a fatal genetic condition and will likely not survive, and that Kate, the mother's health, is at risk as a result. But in its ruling, the court said this, quote, no one disputes that Ms. Cox's pregnancy has been extremely complicated. Any parents would be devastated to learn of their unborn child's trisomy 18 diagnosis. Some difficulties in pregnancy, however, even serious ones, do not pose the heightened risks to the mother that the exemption encompasses. This ruling comes just hours after Cox's attorney announced that she had already left the state to get an abortion elsewhere. It is a move that brings to mind something the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg warned about in 2015, essentially previewing what life may become if Roe fell. There will never be a time when women of means will lack choice. Because take the worst case scenario, Roe v. Wade is overruled by the Supreme Court. What it means is a woman who can afford a plane ticket, a bus ticket, will be able to decide for herself whether to have an abortion. But the women who won't have that choice are poor women. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I think. And that is the reality now in the state of Texas. Joining us now, senior advisor for Planned Parenthood, Texas Votes, and former Texas State Senator Wendy Davis. You will remember her filibuster in 2013. That is her speaking for 11 hours to stall a bill that would have implemented strict abortion regulations. That, of course, was before Roe fell. Wendy, thank you very much for being with me this morning. The Texas Supreme Court bases its decision in this, quote, these laws reflect the policy choice that the state legislature has made, meaning lawmakers like the position you were in before, and the court must respect that choice. You were a state legislature. Why is that wrong in your view? Well, it's wrong because the state legislature is intervening in the most private personal health care decisions that a person can make. And of course, they're substituting their own judgment for situations in which we should be respecting people's privacy. These are health care decisions. And what Kate Cox and her family faced is a complete tragedy. One, of course, that she will have additional emotional turmoil and, and trauma because she's had to leave our state to get the care that she needs. And as Justice Ginsburg said, if Kate hadn't had the means to do so, imagine the horrific situation she would be facing. And the fact of the matter is that women across our state every single day are denied the abortion health care that they need because they don't have the means to access that care. You are arguing this court, uh, the High Court of Texas, is denying uh, people's right to privacy. But indeed, the Supreme Court, in the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, said there is no constitutional 
right to privacy. That's, you know, that's the basis on which it fell. So if there's not clarification in this language, what does that mean for women across Texas, pregnant women in a position like Kate's in? You know, it's interesting that you showed um, what Governor Whitmer is doing in Michigan, which is, of course, in complete contrast to what we're doing here in Texas. And it demonstrates how important electoral outcomes are. Our policies, of course, are formed by policy leaders who reflect the values of the people who elect them to serve. And what that means for people like us in states like Texas, where we do have a great deal of voter suppression, is that we've got to work even harder to make sure that we are helping people understand they have a voice in this situation. They have a voice in who will serve them and they have a voice in whether their values are going to be reflected in the decisions of lawmakers. These particular lawmakers have said that it's perfectly fine for doctors to spend the rest of their lives in prison to lose their medical license if they choose to provide needed abortion care to people in our state. They've substituted their judgment for doctors, and it's time for us to say we're not going to accept that. I'm glad you bring up what is uh, a felony that doctors could face. It is punishable by a minimum of five years in prison and a maximum of 99 years in prison if doctors are found guilty of violating it. But I I do want to ask you, Wendy, is this an issue of clarifying the language? Because the Texas Supreme Court here is saying doctors can make this decision But they're essentially arguing that the language that Kate's doctor used wasn't clear enough. They write, Dr. Carson asked the court to pre-authorize an abortion, yet she could not, or at least did not, attest to the court that Ms. Cox's condition poses the risks the exception requires. Is this about a need for clarity of language and doctors being extraordinarily clear when they are using that language about a patient? What we're learning here, Poppy, is that language um, can be argued in any instance. And that's what's put doctors in such danger here. The court is suggesting and the legislature has said that this should be a reasonable judgment standard. The problem is there's always five or 10 people who may disagree that your judgment was reasonable. What the Center for Reproductive Rights has been asking is that instead, doctors be allowed to use a good faith standard, Mm -hmm. that in their good faith judgment, they can provide this care. And without that kind of clarification and that kind of protection, doctors across our state are stuck in a quandary, unable to provide care, even when their patients' lives are at risk. This case exemplifying how there are indeed limits, even when there are exceptions written into the law. Uh, Wendy Davis, thank you very much for your time, former Texas state senator. Thank you, Poppy. Of course. Bill. Well, this morning, Israel says its troops have surrounded Hamas's last two strongholds in northern Gaza. We're going to be live in Israel with the latest on the offensive. And with only five weeks until the Iowa caucuses, Ron DeSantis joins our very own Jake Tapper tonight live from Iowa to take questions from the voters there. Ahead, a preview of tonight's presidential town hall. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The U.N. General Assembly is set to vote on a resolution this morning demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza as the humanitarian crisis worsens each day. 
Israel's defense minister claims the last two Hamas strongholds in northern Gaza are now completely surrounded. Heavy fighting has been reported in the south as well after Israel's military expanded its offensive. CNN's Alex Marquardt joins us live from Karim Shalom, Shalom Crossing. Alex, this crossing is big news today. What do you see on the ground there? It is big news, Phil. Karem Shalom just ap opened a couple hours ago to allow for more trucks of aid to be inspected uh, to go into Gaza. You can see this line of trucks here. We've been watching them line up and get inspected. We've seen cases, for example, in their cargo holds uh, from the World Food Program. You can see another long line of trucks right here waiting their turn to get inspected. They're coming from the Egyptian side of the border. And, and just in a few moments, they'll come around this corner uh, to go down into that inspection process. But Phil, essentially what this does is that this allows for more approved aid to get into Gaza. It does not necessarily mean that more aid is going to get into Gaza. No aid will be crossing from this side. All of these trucks that you see here that are being inspected, they then have to go back into Egypt and back up to that Rafah crossing before they are allowed into Gaza. And so even if more aid is approved and Israel has had a very strict inspection process, uh, there's still a bottleneck at that Rafah crossing. Uh, Rafah is not built to, to handle a large volume of trucks. And you've seen the enormous numbers of people fleeing south, the pandemonium in the southern part of Gaza, the, the heavy violence that has made distribution so difficult. But in theory, Phil, the good news is that this would double the amount of aid that Israel approves to go into Gaza. You know, to that point, Alex, U.S. officials have been pressing their Israeli counterparts on the issue of aid, on ramping up uh, aid, surging it to some degree as well. They've also been pressing them to try and minimize civilian casualties, be more precise in those operations in the south. Have you seen any sense or at least gotten any sense in talking to Israeli officials that they're heeding uh, those requests or those warnings? Well, Phil, you heard Secretary Blinken over the weekend, and he said repeatedly that there is still a gap uh, between what he calls the intent uh, to keep civilians safe uh, and what is actually happening on the ground. Israel is defending itself by saying, well, we've issued these warnings for, for civilians to evacuate the area, uh, but still civilians are, are being killed and harmed uh, in, in incredible numbers. Uh, the, the, one of the most pressing issues for the United States right now, Phil, is to get this aid into Gaza. Uh, humanitarian officials certainly hope that this crossing uh, will be open soon. For now, I'm told by the IDF, that is not on the table, that it is a political decision. So essentially, the Netanyahu government has decided that for now, this will not be used to get the aid into Gaza. It is only going to be used for these inspections. That's a really important and interesting point. Alex Marquardt, live for us on the ground. Thank you. Today is the last day of a critical climate summit. But talks are now headed into overtime. What's missing from the draft agreement that climate experts are calling weak? And this just in, in a letter first shared with CNN, we're learning that three top Democrats are demanding that the FAA require airlines to carry EpiPens on board commercial flights. Right now, it's not required for the life-saving medication that stops allergic reactions to be part of an in-flight emergency kit. We'll keep you posted. We'll be right back. We've been seeing the fossil fuel polluters try to manipulate this uh, process for a long time, and the world's running out of patience. Well, Brandy, this morning, a deadline set by the president of, COP28, of the COP28 climate talks. They've come. They have gone. There has been no deal, and climate activists are outraged. Today is the official last day of the summit in Dubai. Negotiators have been scrambling to bridge the divide after a controversial draft of the agreement was published last night. 
Its latest version dropped calls for a phase out of fossil fuels, which had appeared in previous drafts. United States and some allies, including the United Kingdom and the European Union, not happy about that. Former Vice President Al Gore posting on X at the conference was on the verge of complete failure. The EU's climate commissioner says they are working on their next move. Uh, there is a great majority of countries who actually want and demand more in terms of phasing out uh, and in terms of what is in the text. Uh, and it is up to us to make sure that these voices are being heard and that this uh, is solved in the next day or the next days or however long it's going to take. Joining us now, our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. I mean, this was the hope. Al Gore to Jake this weekend was saying, well, if we can get to an agreement with the phase out of fossil fuels at some point, there's hope. That's out of this draft now. It is. And then uh, one spokesman from Greenpeace said it's like a dagger to our heart when we read that. Because there was so much hope last week. In fact, there was so much momentum behind the ambitious countries wanting to say this is the beginning of the end of fossil fuels that OPEC had an internal meeting that was fraught with worry and saying we have to fight this because it's an existential threat to our business model. But guys, it's so telling about human nature. This is the 28th conference of the parties where every country comes together. We've been doing this for almost 30 years. This is the first time they've managed to use the F word, fossil fuels, which is the source of the climate crisis. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is adamant about keeping that language out. And that seems to be where the, where the loggerheads is. You've got the United States, the EU, the smaller, most vulnerable countries saying, if not now, when? And you've got the big petro states refusing any of this language. Can you explain for folks, when you hear the UN climate chief say a great majority of countries want to do more. That's not enough. Not enough. Why not? Because the minority of countries include Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, and, and other countries. they big... have veto power over well, a final statement? Well, this is supposed to be unanimous. The idea is that if it's, you know, 90% of the world ratifies this idea, there's always wiggle room for somebody to say, well, not everybody's on board, so why are you holding it to us? Yeah, right, because it's not binding. So if you want people to comply, you need them on board. But here's the thing that's missing. I spoke okay. to two CEOs of, of, of new energy startup companies who went to there and said they came back so enthused because what's happening on the sidelines are states, countries, cities, super ambitious about decarbonization. The economics are all there. They say it's just a matter of time. Even the, the big oil heavies know they were working on borrowed time in the mm-hmm. fossil fuel economy. It's just how long that fight takes and how many ecosystems die as a result of this debate. Having been last year with President Biden, if you can go, go. You will not walk away from it depressed and feeling like everything's awful. The young people, the entrepreneurs that are at COP, right. um, they kind of give you a, an energy that you wouldn't expect, given okay. the dynamics on the top of this conference. And once a promise is set like the Paris Accords, you can see the way it sort of flattened the curve for a lot of countries yeah. because they, they're on record saying we want to do this. Until we pulled out. Exactly. Well, yeah. Back in. Back in. Bill Weir, thank out. you. Thanks, Bill. We'll you see are. In a little more than an hour, Ukraine's president will be on Capitol Hill urging lawmakers to provide more aid. Up next, Senator Chris Murphy will join us ahead of this morning's all-senators meeting with Volodymyr Zelensky. In just about an hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will begin a day of high-level meetings on Capitol Hill. He is set to meet with senators and have a one-on-one meeting with the House Speaker Mike Johnson before he heads to the White House. Senators are getting or pessimistic about a deal on immigration in order to greenlight aid to Ukraine. Republicans say Zelensky's visit will not do anything to change their demands that U.S. border policy be dealt with as part of this. 
we, we have responsibility in the United States of America. That would mean me going back to my state and saying I care about people in other countries, but I don't care about what's happening in my own country. It's important that we actually do two things at once here, and we're the United States of America. It's not that we look at other nations and go, gosh, they're really in trouble, but we're going to ignore our own needs as well. We've got to actually pay attention to our own needs while we're also dealing with the needs around the world as well. That was Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford, who is the lead Republican negotiator on immigration policy, the lead Democratic negotiator on all this. Senator Chris Murphy has warned, quote, the future of the world is at stake if we fail. Murphy also says Putin is delighting in Republicans' insistence that we get a deal on immigration reform. Russia does appear to be celebrating. Look at Russian state TV. What's happening in the U.S. is beneficial for us. Ukraine is losing. Russia is winning. This is it. Their funding and weapons came to an end. As of now, well done, Republicans. They're standing firm. That's good for us. Even Mitch McConnell, well done, Gramps. Joining us now is Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Senator, you said the future of the world is at stake. And you're shaking your head, I think, because of what you just heard from Russian state television. You guys have 48 hours. Are you gonna get this done? Well, I hope that President Zelensky's visit is impactful, but that's absolutely remarkable to listen to uh, Vladimir Putin's mouthpieces on Russian state TV celebrating uh, Republicans' decision to hold up aid to Ukraine, which they say they support because they want to get Trump border policies put into law, something that the American people don't support. I, I just think this is too important to play games over. Yes, I'm in the room trying to figure out a path forward on these Republican demands because failure cannot be an option. But we shouldn't have to be here. If we all agree that it would be terrible for America and terrible, terrible for the world for Vladimir Putin to march through Ukraine and potentially into Europe, then let's stop him from doing that. I have lots of domestic political priorities. I would like to see universal background checks or a ban on assault weapons passed. But I am not conditioning my support to stop Vladimir Putin's march into Ukraine upon the resolution of my domestic political priorities, because if all of us did that, Washington would grind to a halt. We've got to get things done when we agree. And Republicans say that they support Ukraine funding. So I wish they would just put their votes where their mouth is. Instead, we are in a difficult negotiation on border policy that may come to a conclusion this week. It may not. But uh, the future of the world really is at stake. James Langford, who we just heard from, your Republican um, counterpart in all of this, said, uh, look, it's the Biden administration the president that coupled this all together in his supplemental request. He put border funding with Ukraine and Taiwan and Israel funding. You said the White House is more involved now. Do you think he has a point by saying the Biden administration coupled it together and now we've got to deal with it together? I don't, because it's fairly normal for there to be these emergency spending bills before Congress when we have insufficient funds for um, the operation of the border or for our foreign policy objectives. It's very different to say, on top of that funding, we are going to make major changes in law. And that's what Republicans are asking for. They are asking for very severe, very draconian immigration policy changes, policy changes that they know could not pass if they weren't holding up support uh, for the war against Vladimir Putin. But isn't that um, so the exact I, I just point? Think that's the difficulty. 
Isn't that the, isn't that their exact point? Is, well, this is a moment. It's a crisis. I think many people agree what's happening at the border is a crisis. So this is a moment we got to deal with it at home. And then we're going to help Ukraine, too. Yeah, I, I think we should separate the two. I don't think that um, Vladimir Putin should be given a green light to invade uh, and conquer Ukraine and Europe simply because uh, for 40 years we've had a tough time coming to a conclusion on immigration policy. But listen, Poppy, we're going to work at this. I, I'm, I'm at the table. I hear what mm -hmm. Republicans have been saying. We're going to try to come to a conclusion. And I'm sitting down with Senator Langford and others in good faith this week. And you did point out, look, in your words, this is 10 times more complicated than even gun reform uh, to have comprehensive immigration reform, which I think speaks to just what you guys are up against. You know what I'm really struck by, Senator, is... Um, is the sentiment of the American people. There are a number of new polls out that show that the support for more funding for Ukraine is waning. I mean, just look at the Pew numbers. 31% of Americans think the U.S. is providing too much support to Ukraine. The same thing is reflected in Gallup. What do you say to those people at home who feel that way? How do you change their hearts and minds? Well, I, I, listen, I, I think we do labor uh, under the consequences of really bad American foreign policy for the last 20 years. Mm. When the American public looks at the places where the United States has been involved or funded wars overseas, few of them have gone right. I admit that, right? From Vietnam to Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria. Um, but this is different. This is the World War II, the post-World War II order coming undone. And if big countries can reset their borders by invading smaller countries, uh, then I think it's just a matter of time before American troops are directly at war with a big power abroad, whether it be Russia mm. or China. So this feels different to me. Um, if we don't hold the line here, mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, I think we're going to have American men and women fighting and dying overseas, which is something that I don't want and the American people don't want. Senator Murphy, Thursday marks 11 years since the tragic massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary. It is the reason it propelled you to Congress to try to change things. This has been your fight on guns of your entire career in Congress. Um, the youngest Sandy Hook victim would be 17 today. They'd be finishing high school. They'd be planning for college. They'd be with their family getting ready, celebrating Hanukkah, getting ready for Christmas, all of that. Our latest analysis at CNN is that there have been 80, 80 school shootings just so far this year, most of them on K through 12 campuses. Reflect on the last 11 years, where we are and where we go. Yeah, listen, obviously this is a really hard time for all of us uh, as we get ready to mark 11 years since Sandy Hook. I've you know, spent a lot of time with the families from Sandy Hook at this time, um, and there's a dissent that happens for all of them as they get ready for December 14th. Um, and yes, the mass shootings, the school shootings are still at historic highs, but there is some good news. We passed last year the first um, bipartisan major change in gun laws in 30 years. We broke the back of the NRA. And overall gun violence rates in this country are actually down by a significant number since we passed that bill, over 10%. The mass shootings are still high, but there are far fewer people dying from 
uh, guns this year than last year because we passed legislation making it harder for dangerous people to get guns. Now, uh, that means there's 100 people, not 110 people dying every day. That's still far too high, but it shows what is possible. And what is possible is real changes in gun laws because we've built a movement since Sandy Hook of kids, adults, community members uh, to make sure that we are more powerful than the NRA. So it is a very sad time of the year. But for me, it's a reminder of what is possible and what we've actually achieved in the last decade. That Congress can do hard things when there is a will. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you very much. We'll be thinking of all of you on Thursday. Thank you. Well, just 16 years old, Marvin Haynes went to prison for murder he says he had nothing to do with. Now, nearly 20 years later, his conviction has been thrown out. Coming up, Marvin joins us live for his first national TV interview as a free man. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. That moment after spending two decades behind bars for a wrongful murder conviction, that's Marvin Haynes. He is a free man this morning. Haynes was sentenced to life in prison for the 2004 killing of a man in Minneapolis flower shop. He was just 16 years old. The now 36-year-old has maintained his innocence from the beginning. On Monday, a judge signed the order to overturn Haynes' wrongful conviction on the basis of unconstitutional witness identification. The judge also citing lack of physical evidence, writing, quote, there was no physical evidence linking petitioner to the crime scene. There was no DNA evidence, fingerprint evidence, physical evidence, surveillance evidence, or other forensic evidence. The prosecutor who tried Haynes's case told the Minnesota Star Tribune that he was appalled by the decision to overturn the conviction. And speaking to CNN affiliate Carol Levin, the family called this a tra travesty. Here's what Martin said when he learned his conviction was overturned. I shed tears. I haven't cried so much in, 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 in 19 years. I'm just like overwhelmed with emotion. I, I was excited just to get my life back to know like these people has recognized my innocence and just know the truth prevailed at this, this time. I mean, it, it took 19 years, but I'm here and all I want to do is move forward and um, just get my life back. Joining us now for his first national television interview since being released is Marvin Haynes and Marvin's attorney, Andrew Markhart, a managing attorney at the Great North Innocence Project, which has worked for years to secure this release. Thank you very much for being with us, Marvin. We were talking to you in the commercial and you just started smiling, a smile that you have really been waiting to give as a free man for almost 20 years. Your justice was delayed, but ultimately not denied in the end. What do you want people to know? I just want people to know that I'm innocent. I was innocent from the very beginning. I, um, and I'm just happy that people just recognize it and um, understand my story and really know that I'm actually innocent. So I'm just proud that people just know my name and just know my story. Marvin, I, I have to ask about your sister and just reading about everything over the course of the last several years, but even just the last several months, her role in this moment, I think we saw her behind you uh, when you were speaking to the press after you were released. Talk about what she was doing throughout this process. She was tremendous in this process. She was in a community making sure people know that I'm innocent, um, talking to everybody you can think of just so they can know like, yeah, this man is really innocent and this is a tragedy to the community. We need to come together and make sure that 
they recognize what's going on so we can correct this injustice. Uh, Andrew, to you, I'm interested in your response to this is from the DA on the case now, not the one who originally prosecuted it. Mary Moriarty, here's what she said. The Hennepin County Attorney's Office bears responsibility for taking almost 20 years away from Marvin Hayes and his family. We have deeply devoted professionals in this office who are committed to doing the right thing every day. And doing the right thing sometimes means we must seek to undo the harms of the past and not defend them. And that is what we have tried to do today. Andrew, can you speak to those who are in similar shoes to Marvin, still behind bars, who may not have a sister like him or an attorney like you? Sure. I mean, that was a pretty incredible moment to, to hear those words from the, the now county attorney, Mary Moriarty, whose office did ultimately um, agree to, to vacate conv this conviction, I think, on, on the strength of the evidence here. Um, so I think I think Marvin's story can be an inspiration for people who are still still fighting their cases. Unfortunately, it, it takes far too long in too many instances and our laws make it far too difficult uh, to get this kind of relief. But uh, hopefully uh, his story can provide some hope for those who are still out there fighting. But Marvin, she, she also said about you, and I thought this was really interesting in her press release. You lost the opportunity to graduate from high school, to have a prom, to have relationships, to attend a wedding and funerals and be with your family for the holidays. For that, I am so deeply sorry. I know, I know sorry does not take it back, Marvin, but I just wonder what those words felt like. It means so much to me for somebody with that much power to now recognize that I'm innocent and correct it and just help me move forward with my life because it's been a long journey. So to hear them words from somebody to acknowledge that I'm actually innocent and help me get my life back, I, I, that, I can't even explain what it means to me. Marvin, what was your first night home like? What do you have planned for the weeks, months, years ahead? I mean, I went to a nice dinner with my lawyer. We, we, we enjoyed each other and was so appreciative of them. They helped save my life. So, and just, you know, correct my narrative. And I'm just so, I, I was so happy about that. But um, I'm looking forward to get a job and just get my life in order and just, um, yeah, just try to work me a little job and so I can have discipline and, you know, and just try to help my family out. Well, thank you both very much for, for being with us. And just to read as we go a statement from now Senator Klobuchar, who was the county attorney at the time. She didn't prosecute this case, but she was the county attorney at the time. She said the senator, her office as a senator respects the judicial process. She has worked closely with the Innocence Project on reforms and has long supported their work and will continue to do so. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Putin must lose, must lose so that everyone else who sees Russia's war on Ukraine as, as his personal lecture at the so-called University of Aggression gets the message loud and clear, Putin must lose. 
Good morning, everyone. In the next hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will meet with senators pleading for more war funding. Why he says doing nothing is a win for Putin. And House Republicans are set to meet as they plan to formalize their impeachment inquiry into President Biden with a House vote this week. This, despite any any direct evidence, at least at this point, of wrongdoing by the president. Also in about 30 minutes, we are going to get a key inflation reading for the month of November. How those numbers could factor into what the Fed does with rates tomorrow. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. And here's where we begin with a live look at Capitol Hill, where Ukrainian President Zelensky will arrive any moment. He will be making a last-ditch plea to Congress to stop stalling and approve billions in additional aid in their fight against Russia. Lawmakers are deadlocked, though, right now, and time is running out quickly to try to reach a deal before they go home for the holidays. Now, in just one hour, Zelensky will enter uh, the United States Capitol, speak to the entire Senate. Later, he has meetings with President Biden at the White House. House Speaker, the Republican Speaker, Mike Johnson. Zelensky that will be facing a much colder reception from Republicans compared to less than one year ago when he received this hero's welcome. Thank you so much. That was December of last year when a joint session of Congress gave Zelensky a standing ovation during his first visit of the war. He received an American flag from then Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Seen as Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. Lauren, it is such a different moment. Some Republicans are saying Zelensky's visit won't change anything at all based in terms of their opposition to additional aid. Yeah, this is an impassioned plea, obviously, from Ukraine's president as he arrives on Capitol Hill this morning. And lawmakers are staring down what may be their last week in Washington before they depart for the holiday recess. And they are, at this point, Phil, no closer to getting more aid approved. And that is because of a domestic policy quagmire over the southern border as Republicans and Democrats remain deeply divided. There's still a lot of daylight between what both sides would be willing to accept when it comes to strengthening U.S. border policy on the southern border. And right now, Zelensky is unlikely to change those dynamics, despite what he might tell lawmakers behind closed doors. Republicans telling us last night that they are going to be unmoved by their pledge that they are going to require border security changes in order to give Ukraine additional funding. Now, one of the most high stakes meetings that Zelensky is going to have today is going to be with the new speaker, Mike Johnson. That is because ultimately it will be Johnson's decision if a deal can be brokered in the Senate as to whether or not that deal is strong enough to put on the floor of the House of Representatives. There is a lot more pushback from House conservatives when it comes to giving additional aid to Ukraine. Some of those members, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, arguing that border security is not going to change her calculation or her belief that Ukraine shouldn't get a single penny more. So that is the dynamic that Johnson is up against. And that is why Zelensky's message to him is going to be so critically important today. Phil, Poppy. Lauren Fox on the Hill, thanks very much. Well, joining us now to discuss all this, John Kirby, the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House. Admiral, we appreciate your time this morning. I'm struck by the fact that President Biden has used five words repeatedly over the course of the last two years. When asked how long U.S. support for Ukraine will continue, he says, as long as it takes, over and over and over again. Was he wrong? 
No. In fact, that's still his intention, Phil. We want to be able to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Now, obviously, we'd all love this war to be over tomorrow, if it could be, in terms that are acceptable to the Ukrainian people. But Mr. Putin shows absolutely no desire in ending this war, sitting down and negotiating at all. In fact, quite the contrary. He's now attacking energy infrastructure with missiles and drones, trying to weaponize winter. And we know that his forces on the ground are trying to go on an offensive uh, in the east. So there's no indication that he's slowing down. If Ukraine stops fighting, that's the end of Ukraine. And none of us should be uh, willing to accept that outcome. So is there a plan B? You know, is there some executive action? He does not control the purse strings here. Is there some executive plan that he can kind of end run Congress here? Uh, look, we'll do what we can to continue to support Ukraine if we run out of funds, but there won't be there won't be much we can do, Phil. I mean, we've got to have this additional supplemental funding. We've got a couple more weeks to go here, and I think you'll see us announce some additional security assistance in coming days and maybe a couple weeks or here from now before the end of the year. But then that's it. Uh, there's nothing left in the pot if we don't get additional funding for Ukraine. And think about this. The, he's already weaponizing winter, Mr. Putin. He's already going on the offense. When the ground freezes in January and February, he'll be even more able to take the offense against Russian, uh, I'm sorry, against Ukrainian forces that are, try to defend themselves against those onslaughts. And they won't have the capabilities, the weapons, the tools they need uh, to fight back. It's a dire situation here, not just up on Capitol Hill, but it's going to be a dire situation in the east and the south of Ukraine very, very soon. It is so striking, Admiral, how different this moment is from the moment a year ago uh, with the surprise visit to the White House, to Capitol Hill, in terms of how the U.S., how Washington seems to feel about this, or at least the direction yeah. of it. What is the message that the president plans to give President Zelensky behind closed doors with no deal currently in hand and no real sense that one's coming anytime soon? He'll tell him that he is going to keep working very, very hard uh, inside this administration and up on Capitol Hill to get that supplemental uh, funding passed, that he and our team are going to be working with Senate Democrats to see if there's some sort of compromise that can be had to, to get uh, that supplemental funding uh, su supported. And, of course, to work with the other side on border security issues. The president believes that's important, too. So he's going to make it clear to President Zelensky that he's not giving up on this uh, and that he really wants to get that supplemental funding passed. In terms of the types of conversations, David Sanger over at The New York Times uh, has a really fascinating story out this morning saying U.S. officials have been pushing a more conservative strategy, focuses on holding territory that Ukraine has, digging in, building up supplies and forces over the course of the year. Has Ukraine been receptive uh, to that push from the U.S. side? Well, I won't talk about our conversations with the Ukrainian military one way or the other, Phil. I'll just tell you that uh, we know that uh, the Ukrainians are facing a, a tough uh, force across that uh, across that battlefront with the with the Russians, the, a, a force that wants to go on the offense. Uh, they want to claw back territory. They've gotten 50 percent of their territory back uh, since they conducted this counteroffensive. Uh, and whatever they decide to do is going to be their decisions. President Zelensky is the commander in chief of, of his armed forces. He gets to decide what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. What we want to make, make sure is that we're in a position to give them as much capability as possible to get that done. I want to move to the Israel-Hamas war, obviously also a central issue for the White House and the president right now. Take a listen to what the president said at the Hanukkah reception last night. We continue to provide military assistance to Israel to, until they get rid of Hamas. But, but we have to be careful. They have to be careful. The whole world's public opinion can shift overnight. We can't let that happen. Admiral, you have made this point. Top officials across the administration have made this point repeatedly, particularly over the course of the last several weeks. 
Can you point to specific evidence that your counterparts in the Israeli government have been listening to the concern? They have, they have been, Phil, receptive to the message about civilian casualties and reducing damage to civilian infrastructure. So here's just a couple of examples. And I'm not going to, I'll caveat it by saying we know there's more that needs to be done. And the president talked about that last night. It's something we constantly urge our Israeli counterparts to do, to be as careful and deliberate as possible. But, for instance, when they went into North Gaza, we sent over a couple of uh, military generals with ground experience uh, to talk to them about their plans. They had a much larger force plan. They went in with a much smaller force in a much more targeted way. I'm not suggesting they didn't cause civilian casualties. Of course they did. But they did limit the scope of their operations a little bit and went in, in a more precise way. Then in just recent uh, days, they're dropping leaflets. They're publishing maps online to, to explain where the people of Gaza can go in the south, where they can be more safe from combat operations. That's basically telegraphing your punches. And there's not a lot of modern militaries that would do that, that would lay out a map for the whole world to see about where it's safe to go and where it's not safe to go. Right. Again, Phil, I want to come back to what I said. We know there's, there's too many civilian casualties. We want them to do more to limit those, those civilian casualties. Each one is a tragedy. We want the number to be zero. Uh, and that's what we're going to continue to do and continue to press with our Israeli counterparts. Can I just follow up on that point, though, with kind of the message that you and others were sending before and in the very early stages of the operations in the South? Take a listen. We've said, we've said publicly, we don't want to see them move into the South unless or until they have accounted for that additional now civilian population. That's why we continue to work, as Secretary Austin said, with our Israeli counterparts to get them to be as careful and as precise and as deliberate in their targeting as possible. They clearly are trying to make an effort to be more precise and more cautious here. And that's, of course, something we've been urging them to do literally uh, from the beginning of the conflict. Admiral, I play that because, they, uh, to your point, the, the maps, the, the telegraphing that they've been doing has been a shift. It's different from what they were doing in the north. However, precision, uh, more CT kind of focused operations, that isn't really what we've been seeing. This has been a pretty wide scale offensive in the south. Uh, do you believe that they're doing, they're making mistakes in terms of how they're operating? Well, as I said, we believe they can certainly do more. They have been receptive to those messages, as, I, uh, as I've said many times. I mean, again, publishing these maps is not an insignificant step on their part. But I think they're doing a little bit of both, Phil. I mean, I think they're, you're seeing airstrikes, and certainly in airstrikes, you can cause your, your chances of causing civilian casualties are higher. But they are also conducting what we would call CT operations on the ground, going after specific uh, leadership targets. So I think it's a little bit of a blend uh, on their part. But again, we're going to continue to work with them, A, to make sure they They've got the tools to, to do it and to do it effectively because Hamas still represents a viable threat to the Israeli people, but also do it carefully, cautiously and deliberately. And we're going to keep urging them to do that. Admiral John Kirby, very big day uh, at the White House. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. With only five weeks until the Iowa caucuses, Florida governor and Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis joins our Jake Tapper live from Iowa tonight to take questions straight from the voters ahead of uh, that. We got a preview of the presidential town hall. And the Texas Supreme Court rules against a woman seeking an abortion after learning the fetus has a fatal genetic condition. What the case means in a post-Roe America. Only five weeks to go until the Iowa caucuses. Florida governor and Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis will be live on CNN at 9 p.m. Eastern time from the stage at the Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa. The town hall will be moderated by our very own Jake Tapper. DeSantis is trying to mitigate his diminishing poll numbers by attacking two of his biggest opponents, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. He's his own worst enemy by not being able to control his mouth. 
and that has consequences for governance and us being able to get things done. You can't have Hawkeye Haley here saying she's conservative and then a more nuanced Nikki appealing to independents and, and liberals in New Hampshire. Uh, that doesn't work. you got to have the same message everywhere. Jessica Dean live for us from Iowa. I mean, nuance in life, nuance does matter a lot, but he's a nuanced Nikki and tricky Nikki. He's got a lot of nicknames for Nikki Haley. What are you expecting tonight? Yeah. He sure does, Poppy. And as we would imagine, as we get ever closer to those January 15th caucuses here in Iowa, the attacks do get sharper. And DeSantis now kind of fighting a fight on two fronts against the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, and then also Nikki Haley, who is seeing a surge as we head into this late stage of this primary before we get to the voting. Uh, and so we are seeing those those attacks sharpen. We got a new poll out of the Des Moines Register uh, yesterday that really gives us a snapshot of where things stand here in Iowa. And if you look at those numbers, you see that the former president continues to have a commanding lead here with 51% saying they would support him. DeSantis there at 19% and Haley at 16%. And so that is, you can see, kind of a race for second place. If you talk to DeSantis and his team, they will tell you that is not what they're here to do. They have gone all in on Iowa. He has visited all 99 counties. They are making a big play here for those evangelical voters. And Poppy, one more thing to note before I let you go, in terms of that sharper attack, we saw a tweet uh, or a post on X from DeSantis yesterday going after Trump, who had claimed it was braver to debate Hillary Clinton than to go into the battlefield. And he said, debating isn't brave. It's the bare minimum any candidate it should do. Hiding from debates, on the other hand, is an example of cowardice. Poppy calling him essentially a coward there. Of course, he is not. Trump participated in any of the debates uh, leading up to voting on January 15th. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he keeps sharpening those attacks later tonight with Jake. Jessica Dean, thanks so much. Be sure to watch the town hall tonight at 9 p.m. right here on CNN. Well, in Washington, Rudy Giuliani is facing a trial where a jury will determine how much he owes to former Georgia election workers for defamation. Here's what Giuliani had to say on Monday. But everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to sh Of course I don't regret. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. To be crystal clear, there is no proof of that. None of Giuliani's claims are true. Zero. Giuliani's own lawyer acknowledged in court yesterday, quote, there's no question Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were harmed. Those are the two election workers and that they, quote, didn't deserve what happened to them. Freeman and Moss faced a deluge of racial slurs, insults, even death threats. Giuliani, we should note, has already been found liable for defamation. Nothing he said is true or accurate. He's lying. And it's hurting people. Just want to reiterate that every day of this trial. Let's bring in CNN political commentator Alyssa Farrah Griffin and the writer of a very serious newsletter, Josh Barrow. Um, Josh, to that point, yeah. I feel like we've done the whole, like, what happened to Rudy? What is Rudy doing? All, literally, everything is a lie. Yeah. And he's coming out. At the moment, he might have to pay tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, what's, what's the deal here? I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on inside his head. I mean, he's, you know, through the process in this trial where, you know, he's clearly been ruined financially by the immense legal costs that he has from so many simultaneous legal proceedings that he's dealing with. He did these filings where he tried to admit to certain things, but only for certain purposes and not for other things. And the, the judge was not really having it. But he's claimed in writing that he's admitting that certain things he said were not true, that he's now outside the courtroom there 
saying, in fact, that they were true. So I don't know whether this is, you know, at some point, the size of the judgments that Giuliani is going to face are so large compared to his ability to pay them. It's sort of a question of, you know, what, what's another million dollars kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I'm sort of, you know, the, at, at this point, the, the people who got so deep um, in these in these efforts, spreading the lies around the 2020 election, trying to justify the various both legal and extra legal efforts to overturn the 2020 election. I'm not sure about the extent of the clarity that Rudy Giuliani has in, in his own head right now about what's true and what's not. But certainly it's not good legal strategy to go out there and reiterate the claims you've already admitted in court were false. Beyond the the money when Rudy Giuliani continues to lie like this, these women, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, endure pain again. And the question is how many people believe Rudy Giuliani, despite the fact and what that does to these two women. Well, that's exactly the point. These are two of the kind of the most, some of the most tragic, you know, bystanders of the events leading up to January 6th who are literally just doing their jobs. They were maligned. They've faced all number of threats um, for just simply doing their jobs. And here's the thing with Rudy is, He's engaging in Trumpian-like behavior. I think he knows that there's no path to not have to pay out these settlements. So he's basically just going to fight, fight, fight. It reminds me of the after the Eugene King, uh, Eugene Carroll yeah. settlement that Trump just went out and said even further and expressed even more lying points that ended up um, leading to him having to pay more money. So I think it's a very similar case. It's horrible, but it does resonate with people who still look to Rudy Giuliani as somebody who is telling them the truth and telling them facts. And it's frankly why as much as 60% of the GOP has questions about the election. Yeah, if you're one of those people or you know one of them, stop. Just stop. Yeah. It's, it's, he's lying. Um, I do want to talk about DeSantis tonight uh, because he's taken a sharper tone. Over the weekend, he took a sharper tone in Iowa. We, we used the post on X, but with words, actually. Yeah. And I chuckled because it's a rarity. Do you think he started to pivot into an attack mode on the guy who's winning by 30 points? Sort of. But I mean, this sort of, you know, why won't he debate me stuff just it comes off as so whiny. Like if you're looking at areas of, of concern for voters, the things that, you know, like Donald Trump isn't going to do what I need him to do. Like the voters concern is not which debates he shows up to. The, his opponents, obviously, that's the number one problem is Donald Trump won't participate in this campaign in the way that would help me. But you're not really speaking to voters individual concerns when you go out there and, and do these sorts of process complaints about he's not showing up to the debates. You know, as, as, over the last few months, I've just been struck by how correct correct the Trump camp's analysis was of DeSantis before he even announced his campaign. When DeSantis, you know, he'd raised all this money, his polls looked a lot better before he got in the race, he'd had this crushing re-election victory as governor of Florida. And all the press reporting about the Trump take on DeSantis was he just doesn't have it. He doesn't have the personality. He's too short. He, you know, and he, and he, and he comes off in the debate. Like verbally? Not physically. Like no, physically. No, no, they think he's physically too oh, short. Okay. I mean, <laughs> the, but, it, but it's, you know, and it's the, Brutal, and this is, you know, why you have all the stuff about, you know, is he wearing yeah, heels? Yeah. But then in, in the debates when he, you know, he, he gets get away from the who's wearing heels is on the debate. <laughs> but but he's, you know, he like he's trying to get all feisty and it's like he's, it's like he's about to explode or something. It's kind of cute. But like not in like a presidential way. He, he looks like he's playing presidential candidate. Well, and the DeSantis team will keep telling you that they expect him to overperform in Iowa to do better than the polls say. They do have a strong ground game. It's a caucus state knocking on doors matters more than most other things there. But the reality is he's directing too much of his ire at Nikki Haley. I get that there's that second place fight. But when you're losing by 30 points to Donald Trump in some states, even more than that. It is too little too late. If he had launched this kind of, and again, it is a process complaint, but if he had said this a year ago, he might be in a different mm -hmm. place. If he'd rode the victory of the 2022 midterms and said, listen, you know, I'm the guy to take him on. This is what Donald Trump can't show up to do and I can do it. 
but it feels very little too late. High stakes for him in Iowa is kind of make or break. Alyssa, what is the impact on the Texas Supreme Court banning a woman from getting uh, an abortion through a medical exemption? What is the impact on that more broadly for Republicans, for any of those candidates trying to take the White House in 24? It is monumentally impactful. I don't know how you can call yourself pro-life and say that a woman should jeopardize her own health, her fertility, and likely her child to carry a baby to term that she very likely may lose. Um, This is where the nuance of the abortion issue comes into play. My party, it's like we're the dog that caught the car, and now we're saying, oh, shoot, there are very real-life cases where a woman, when medically recommended by her doctor, should always have the exception. I'm curious to see how he answers this tonight. We know Jake Tapper is going to ask him because— Iowa, a very conservative state, but this has very real impacts. I know women who've been in similar boats. I think most people do. Um, So I'm curious to see if he actually can pull from some nuanced Nikki Haley and show that this is not a black and white issue. Alyssa, thank you. Josh, good to have you. Thank you. Well, disgraced congressman turned cameo star George Santos expected to appear at a New York courthouse this morning. Is a plea deal on the horizon? We're live in Long Island. Also new this morning, the Harvard Crimson reporting the university's embattled President Claudine Gay will keep her job. We are expecting an official announcement from Harvard this morning. The latest on that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Breaking news into CNN, Harvard's board has just released a statement writing that the school's president, Claudine Gay, has their support and she will keep her job. The elite university is putting its support behind Gay after she appeared before that congressional committee last week. And that appearance was widely criticized in terms of her testimony on anti-Semitism on America's universities. Matt Egan has been following all these developments, breaking news left and right. And this went a different way. Then the University of Pennsylvania, where Liz McGill resigned, Claudine Gay will stay. Why? Yeah, Poppy and Phil, we are just getting this in right now. This was a huge decision that Harvard had to make here. They were facing so many calls to separate themselves from Claudine Gay. They are deciding not to do this. The Harvard Corporation, that's the top governing body at Harvard, just put out this statement. They say they stand unanimously in support of Gay. They called her the right leader to help our community heal and to address the very serious societal issues that we face. The statement goes on to say that calls for genocide are despicable and contrary. Now, this is going to come as a huge relief to the Harvard faculty who really came to Gay's rescue. In the last 36 hours or so, we heard from hundreds of professors come out in support. And we really get the sense that a lot of the people within Harvard, they did not want politicians and donors and other people on the outside to meddle in their affairs, of course, this is going to upset those same politicians and donors, uh, most notably billionaire Bill Ackman, who already tweeted his displeasure uh, about this last night before the news was even official. Uh, But clearly she had enough support and more so than uh, the Pennsylvania president, Liz McGill, who didn't necessarily have that outpouring of support internally that Gay does. And by the way, uh, Claudine Gay apologized in that interview with the Harvard Crimson a couple days ago. You have to wonder what role that played in all of this. Matt, thank you. Great reporting on this topic. Keep us posted. Well, so this morning, expelled former New York Congressman George Santos is said to be in talks with federal prosecutors in the hopes of striking a plea deal. The Republican is facing a laundry list of charges from wire fraud and money laundering to allegations he embezzled cash from his company and conspired with his former campaign treasurer to falsify donation totals. All this unfolding as he is scheduled to appear at a courthouse in Long Island for a status conference. CNN's Bren Gingrass is live uh, for us. Bren, what are prosecutors looking to see happen today? Do we know how this is all going to end? 
Yeah, I mean, Phil, listen, 23 federal charges is what George Santos is facing. Now, today is a status conference hearing. In past status conference hearings, we've just seen prosecutors turn over pages and pages of evidence, some of which have been text messages and emails that prosecutors say implicate the former congressman in these charges. So we expect more of those documents to sort of be exchanged in court today. However, we learned in court paperwork filed yesterday that prosecutors are asking for another status conference hearing in about 30 days and they say that's because the two sides are in talks to strike some sort of plea deal saying the goal of resolving this matter without the need for a trial now listen George Santos actually sat down with our local affiliate WCBS and discussed and hinted at the fact that he might strike a deal take a listen the plea is not off the table, so uh, there's obviously conversations taking place, especially after what happened in Congress. I think everybody should be afraid of going to jail. It's not a pretty place, and uh, I definitely want to work very hard to avoid that as best as possible. Now, keep in mind, Santos's former campaign treasurer, his former campaign fundraiser have already struck deals with prosecutors uh, on charges related to all of this. So it could be very imminent. Not clear if we are going to see any de see any deal today, though it could be uh, very near. And of course, George Santos will arrive here later this morning for court. Uh, Phil and Poppy will have to see if he gives a free cameo and talks to the cameras out here. We'll keep you posted. Uh, well done. Uh, Brent, keep us posted. Thanks so much. Special counsel Jack Smith's extraordinary decision to go straight to the Supreme Court on whether former President Trump is immune from some prosecution is raising new questions this morning. Our senior Supreme Court analyst, Joan Biskupic, writes a piece in her piece this morning. As this case tests Smith's federal prosecution of Donald Trump for election subversion, it will also test America's highest court. Ms. Kupic points out that three of the seven justices are Trump appointees with a fourth Clarence Thomas, tied to the former president through his wife's involvement in the plot to overturn the 2020 election. It's leaving many to wonder if this court can rule on this case impartially. The nine justices. Joining us now is CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. The nine are in the spotlight this morning. I think you put it so well in this piece. This is going to test America's highest court in a highly charged situation with a former president who has repeatedly tried to politicize the federal judiciary to use for his ends. This couldn't get more complex or more important. Right, and it really does bring us back to the, his four years of uh, having his administration policies challenged before the Supreme Court and his own personal business dealings before the court. You know, the, all these cases continued to roil the justices. They always came down to very narrow votes. And here's something that is, uh, offers the court a, a, an unprecedented question. This question of a former president's immunity has never been tested up there. And Jack Smith is essentially asking two things that uh, will make this a, a really critical challenge for the justices. One, to say that Donald Trump uh, should be able to go to trial on March 4th, that he doesn't have immunity from this criminal prosecution. And also, uh, Jack Smith is asking that the justices do something different in their own procedure to essentially you know, let him skip an appellate court and come right to him and say, 
you know, you, Supreme Court, which will be one way or another the ultimate eventual arbiter of whether a former president has immunity in this kind of case, to decide it right now. Don't wait for this intermediate court. Decide it right now. And as you know, Poppy and Phil, um, the special counsel is uh, invoking the Watergate precedent back in 1974 when the Supreme Court did uh, hear the case right after a district uh, judge ruled and ended up ruling against Richard Nixon in his effort to keep the Watergate tapes, saying he was not immune from prosecution. He could not assert executive privilege there. Joan, it took maybe an hour or two hours before some Democrats started calling for Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself, given his wife Jenny's uh, involvement in some of the 2020 issues. Do we have any sense uh, of whether he's willing to do that? Uh, I, I think, Phil, it's, you, know, you hate to predict these things before any kind of official request might be made to uh, Justice Thomas. And frankly, I don't think Jack Smith is going to ask for his recusal. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd almost bet money that the special counsel himself is not going to ask Justice Thomas to recuse himself. But Senators Durbin and Blumenthal, as you say, Phil, have already you know, raised that. Uh, in the past, Justice Thomas has not recused himself from uh, cases related to uh, the election fallout. And these justices are the judges of them own, their own selves in this. So um, it will be up to him and he will probably stay on the case. In other words, don't count on it. Um, I urge everyone. To- <laughs> Go ahead, Joan. No, no, you're right. Uh, it's it's early to tell, but yeah. I, I wouldn't count on it. Right. Okay. okay, everyone read Joan's analysis. It's really interesting. Thanks very much for getting up early for us. Thank you. Well, in just under 30 minutes, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is back in Washington. He's set to meet with lawmakers and President Biden at the White House as he fights for continued U.S. support of his country's battle against Russia. Also, we just got the November inflation report. We'll bring that to you straight ahead. Well, this just in, we have new numbers from the Labor Department showing inflation hit 3.1% in November. CNN Business and Politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins us now. Break down, we get a lot of reports, we yeah. get a lot of numbers. What does this mean in the grand scheme of things? In the grand scheme of things, this is a good report. Year over year, inflation is at expectations, ticking up just slightly from October to November. Nobody likes to see higher prices, but only up 0.1%. The year over year number cooling a little bit to 3.1%. But what we saw in this report is that energy prices fell significantly, and that's because gas prices have fallen in recent months. So you have gas prices falling month over month by 6% year over year, falling by almost 9%. But the reason why we didn't see a more significant decline in this report is because shelter is still really expensive. Rents, housing, what people are paying, that was up 0.4% month over month. And up 6.5% year over year. Some slightly good news at the grocery store. Prices are still up, but cooling. So month over month, up 0.2% year over year, 2.9%. That is cooling from the month prior and the year over year number that we saw in October. But if you take this big report and look at it, sort of step back and look at it, it's important because the Federal Reserve is meeting today and they're gonna be talking about all the data that they've seen over the last couple months. This report will signal to them that they could, tomorrow, the announcement will come, that they could pause interest rate hikes. And that is such good news for the US consumer as they look to next year because ultimately it paves the way for potentially cutting of interest rates. And for everyone who wants to buy a new home, mortgage rates, who's paying a lot on their credit cards, student loans, auto loans, 
it's really important to see this trending in the right direction with interest rates. So people feel like they don't have to spend a lot on interest to pay for everything else. So a really nice report that we're seeing today. And I think consumers hopefully will start to feel this because consumer sentiment for the last couple of months has been on decline. But in the beginning of this month, we saw consumers actually starting to feel a little bit better about the economy. Even our CNN polling showed that many Americans just feel like despite these good economic reports, the economy's not in great shape. Maybe this will help people feel like prices are cooling still a little bit and they'll feel a little bit better about the economy. Vanessa, thank you. Thank you. Well, also happening this morning, House Republicans are set to meet as they prepare to formalize their impeachment inquiry into President Biden with a House vote this week. Speaker Mike Johnson and his leadership team are working to lock down support for the vote and overcome their raise within majority. The investigation has struggled to come up with any direct evidence at all of wrongdoing by Biden. Republicans can only afford three defections in their ranks. Now, Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado had been seen as the only Republican hard no vote. But last night he signaled he's considering backing the impeachment inquiry citing the White House's response to record requests. The White House recently sent a letter um, after uh, these committees issued subpoenas to the White House. The White House sent a letter back and says, you haven't held a, 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 an impeachment inquiry vote yet, and we're not going to give you any records until you uh, pass an impeachment inquiry. Um, I think that is an absolutely wrong position, and it's a delay tactic. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Daniel Goldman of New York, who's on the House Oversight Committee. He served as the lead counsel in the first Trump uh, impeachment of Donald Trump. Congressman, I appreciate your time. What do you think is the rationale for the congressman's reversal, given the fact that in September he wrote a, a very prominent Washington Post opinion piece about why pursuing impeachment was a bad idea for House Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the about phase has to do with a very technical process argument that uh, the White House has somehow stonewalled the, this investigation, which is patently untrue. The letter that they requested uh, information about for the White House related to classified documents, which has never been the subject of the impeachment inquiry. And the White House continues to discuss with the committee ways of cooperating. They've provided uh, 75,000 documents from the National Archives, 2,000 pages of documents from the Treasury Department, documents from the IRS, and confidential information. More than 10 government witnesses have testified, and over 37,000 pages of bank records. The problem here is not the White House, which has been unbelievably cooperative, especially compared to Donald Trump in 2019, who turned over zero documents. The problem here is that they have no evidence to connect Joe Biden to any wrongdoing. And so they are just flailing around trying to come up with some reason to justify impeachment when there really is none because they can't get anything done legislatively. So the idea is to distract the American people with an impeachment investigation that is completely baseless. Congressman, can I ask, you know, what's interesting is you, you listen to what uh, Congressman Buck is saying, what a lot of the moderate Republicans are saying in terms of their willingness to get behind the, the formalized vote. And I went back and, and read Speaker Pelosi's 2019 letter to the caucus on her decision to formalize the vote. And the rationale was the same in terms of they were facing obstruction, they needed more tools, legal tools to get documents. I understand what you're saying about the difference between what the Trump uh, counsel's office was doing versus what the Biden counsel's office is doing in practice on the documents. But I think my question right now is, didn't you guys kind of lay the groundwork for everything the Republicans are doing right now? 
Uh, if it were the case that the Biden administration was completely stonewalling and that President Biden had said, I will defy all subpoenas and that the Biden administration has turned over no documents and provided no witnesses, then yes, the same logic would apply. But of course, that is not the case. The White House and the administration has been unbelievably cooperative with a fishing expedition of an investigation. They have given essentially the Republicans every single thing they've asked for. And you don't have to take my word for it. James Comer said it several months ago when he said he had 100% cooperation from the administration. This is an investigation in search of facts. There are allegations that are completely unfounded, and every single time a Republican is asked to point to specific direct evidence linking Joe Biden to any misconduct, they are unable to because it does not exist. Their own witnesses said that at the original and only public right. impeachment hearing. And so this is, they're just trying to desperately find some rationale to go forward with it, but there is none. Can I ask, you know, a lot of the, the concerns, I think, on the Democratic side is that this will have a political impact to some degree, or they believe that that's why this is being pursued, right? This is for purely political reasons for the <laughs> Democratic uh, incumbent president. Uh, but it's not just Republicans. It, it's Dean Phillips, the Democratic presidential candidate, who's also a colleague of yours in the House, technically, still. He suggested in an interview that the impeachment inquiry into Biden could make him unelectable as a general election nominee. What's your response to that? Well, my response to that is polling that has come out from the 18 Biden districts where Republicans uh, are sitting in Congress. And there was recent polling, which had almost a two to one margin that more Republicans would be unlikely to vote for their incumbent sitting congressperson than they would be more likely to vote if they went forward with impeachment. So let's talk to the American people, the ones who are gonna decide who is in the House majority, and they're overwhelmingly against this impeachment investigation because they know that it is completely baseless, that it is completely partisan for political purposes, and that it is moving forward at the direction of their dear leader, Donald Trump, who wants retribution for his own impeachment Impeachments. Congressman, before I let you go, I do want to ask, um, you have been very critical uh, of some of the words of university presidents who were uh, on Capitol Hill. You have been uh, very critical of uh, a lot of things related to Israel and some within your own party and what they've said on these issues. The decision by Harvard uh, to keep their president that was just announced uh, a few moments ago. What, what, what's your response to that? Well, I'm disappointed, not just because of what the president testified last week, which was almost unconscionable, but also because of Harvard's reaction and response from the beginning of October 7th. But this is a much larger issue, Phil, that we are going to need to take a look at. Campuses all around the country are, are uh, unsafe right now for Jewish students. And this is not the First Amendment. This is a code of conduct by, within the universities that requires the university to protect their students, all students, under Title VI of the civil rights law and under their own code of conduct. And if they are unable to do that, and Harvard has had multiple uh, incidents of outright harassment and threats and uh, borderline violence, and if they're unable to do that, then that is a violation of their code of conduct. And if they're unable to enforce their code of conduct, then they need to either get a new code of conduct or they need to get a new president. And so I hope there's a significant change at Harvard if Dr. Gay is going to stay. All right, Congressman Dan Goldman in New York. Thank you. You got it. Thank you. 
Elon Musk reinstating conspiracy theorist Alex Jones on X. What Musk is doing to actually grow Jones's platform. We'll explain this next. Well, fresh off reinstating Alex Jones to X, Elon Musk is taking some steps that are broadening the conspiracy theorist's reach. Jones's account appeared in the For You feed of some users despite not following him and was pushed under the Who to Follow feed for others. Musk even engaged him in a live stream chat on the platform. Jones, of course, is a fringe right wing figure who has peddled dangerous views over the year. years. CNN's Harry Enton joins us now because, Harry, this may kind of want to step back a little bit and think, how has Elon Musk changed X used to be Twitter uh, since he's taken it over. I mean, just take a look at the number of people or the percentage of people, regular users of X or Twitter for news are. Take a look at this. It used to be Democrats overwhelmingly were the ones who regularly followed X or Twitter for news, a two to one ratio here in 2022. Look at what's happened in 2023. Basically, Republicans have come back to the platform while a lot of Democrats have been leaving the platform. But of course, it's not just Democrats who've been leaving the platform. It's been a lot of ad revenue. A lot of advertisers have been leaving X. Back in 2022, look at that, $4.1 billion in ad revenue. This is an estimate for 2023. It's been sliced in half, in fact, more than half, to just $1.8 billion. So Democrats and advertisers leading um, X or Twitter. How many people are using Twitter now? Yeah, so in terms of the platforms, it's actually really not that powerful. American adults who regularly get their news on X or Twitter, it's just 12%. Compare that to something like Facebook, where it's 30%. And more than that, compare it to TikTok, which has been rising at 14%. And you see this among teenagers, especially teenagers who regularly use X or Twitter. It's 33% a decade ago. Look at where it is today. It's just at 20%. So adults have been leaving it. Advertisers have been leaving it. Teenagers have been leaving the platform. Harry Anton, thank you. Thank you. The breaking political news for you, Republican New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu will be endorsing Nikki Haley for president. It'll happen tonight at an, at an event in New Hampshire. The candidates have been competing for his endorsement for months. Sununu, of course, is a Trump critic who does not believe that Trump can win re-election. A source tells CNN, quote, he's all in on Nikki Haley. But welcome news in a state that's crucial Big endorsement. for her. CNN New Central is next. See you tomorrow. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.